Let's open our Bibles together to Joshua chapter 10. So as you are doing that, I'm going to give you a little pop quiz. This is often how I start my seminary classes, reviewing with the students what they've heard recently, see their listening comprehension, always makes me very encouraged. So a few weeks ago, I can't remember exactly when, but I reminded you of the most often repeated command in all of Scripture. Do not fear. Do not fear. Very good. You all get an A. All right, so next question. This is not from review. This is a new question. Do you know what text of the Old Testament is repeated or quoted more often in the New Testament than any other. Now, if you're one of our NCST students, you don't get to answer. I'm sure you know. But for anyone who's not an NCST student, do you know which Old Testament verse is quoted more than any other in the New Testament? What? Psalm 2 is a very good guess, but it's wrong. It's the right book. Nope, not Joshua. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is repeated over and over again in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is an amazing psalm because David is the king of Israel he is the highest ranking official on planet earth. He's the king of God's people. Now, now watch this. David says, the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's whom we call God the Father. The Lord says to my Lord. You see that? David has a Lord who is not Yahweh. What? Who is above David and not God? Yeah, somebody said, Jesus is. We now know that. David didn't know that, but we now know that. Here is a psalm where David is talking about the coming Messiah, and he says, Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Adonai, that's the Hebrew word there, Adonai, my sovereign one. And what does he say to my king, my sovereign one? He says, sit right here at my right hand, and I'm going to crush your enemies. And the New Testament repeats this over and over again, and we know that Jesus Christ is that Messiah. He is sitting at the right hand of Yahweh, and God is bringing his kingdom into this earth, and God is crushing the enemies of Jesus. And for 2,000 years, God the Father has been crushing the enemies of God the Son, the Messiah who sits on the throne. How is he doing that? Well, many ways, but mainly through the preaching of the gospel. There's a whole kingdom of darkness out there, and Jesus, starting at the resurrection, sent out his disciples in what we call the Great Commission to intrude upon the kingdom of darkness with the gospel and bringing people from that kingdom into the kingdom of his 
beloved son. And God is putting Jesus' feet on the necks of his enemies. Do you remember what the scripture says the last enemy is? It's death. 1 Corinthians 15, right? Eventually, the final enemy will be destroyed. So Jesus is crushing his enemies day after day, week after week, year after year, generation after generation. But finally, eventually, someday, he is going to actually destroy the final enemy, which is death itself, and there will be no more death. That's what the Lord began 2,000 years ago at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we get a little impatient. At least I get a little impatient. Why? Why does he have to wait? Why not right now? Well, the Lord has his plans. He has his purposes. And the way we are taking over the kingdom of darkness is little by little. A little victory here, a little victory there. Sometimes a big victory. Sometimes it seems like we go backwards. It seems like the kingdom of darkness responds with a, a, a great pushback. But over time, little by little, Jesus is building his church. And he said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. I will burst through that, those gates, and I will win. While the whole story of Joshua, everything we're reading here as the Israelites are taking the promised land, is a picture of this new covenant dominance of Christ over his enemies. And God had told the Israelites, it's going to be gradual. It's going to be little by little as you go in. I want to go back and set the stage from uh, Exodus. Oh, I forgot. Well, forget that. Okay. Um, so Exodus chapter 23 is where God reveals to the Israelites how they're going to take the promised land, how they're going to enter into this, this Canaan's land. And here's what he says. Behold... I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. That's the wrong way. Okay. This thing is demon-possessed today, okay? All right, I read that. Be on your guard. So did you catch that? The angel is going before them. He says, be on your guard before him, before the angel... And obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. Now put your thinking caps on. Do you know who this angel is that he's talking about? But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So as you, as you press into the, the uh, Canaan's land, I'm going to send my angel, and if you will obey him and submit to him, then I will destroy your adversaries, your enemies. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. Do you remember what we saw in Joshua chapter 5? Joshua is out looking ahead, thinking about what's coming, and a man is standing there, a soldier. And Joshua says, Who, whose side are you on? He says, that's not, that's not what I'm here to tell you. I'm here to tell you, I am the captain of the Lord's army. Remember that? 
that's the angel. It's God himself showing up. Remember, I argued then it was the pre-incarnate Christ there. He says, I've got this. You come follow me, Joshua, and we're going to destroy all of our enemies. You obey. You have faith. You do what God calls you to do, but I'm going to win the victory. It says, you shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. Get rid of the idolatry. When we go into these nations and these lands, get rid of the idolatry because they will lead you into sin. Destroy them. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There will be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. What does that mean? You're going to charge in there in battle, and they're going to have chaos in their midst. They're going to turn on each other. They're going to be confused about what they're trying to accomplish, and they're going to run away so that their backs will be turned to you as you chase them out. You're going to have your enemies on the run. I will send hornets ahead of you, murder hornets. So that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year. That the land may not be desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. Oh, okay, you can take that away now. See see what it says? Little by little. Little by little. You're going to enjoy some of the fruit of the land, and then you'll take over another part. And you'll settle in there, and then you're going to take over another part. Little by little. That's the vision that we see for the new covenants as well. Little by little. So Joshua 10 is taking over another part of the land of Canaan, the promised land, and driving out the enemies of Joshua and his people. So in chapter 10, verse 1, we read this. It came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. Because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Jephia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. So we have something interesting here in anticipation of where all this is going. The king of Jerusalem's name is Adonai Zedek. Does that remind you of anything? Melchizedek, 
Right? Melchizedek was an ancient king back in Abraham's day. Abraham ran into this man. He comes out of nowhere, this Melchizedek. And Abraham pays tithes to him, acknowledging that this king is superior to me. We pay tithes to those who are superior to us. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Again, the greater one blesses the lesser one. The writer of Hebrews makes a big deal of this. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Melchi comes from the Hebrew word for king, and Zedek is the word for righteous. Well, some scholars believe that this man, Adonai Zedek, is a descendant of Melchizedek. We don't know that for sure, possibly. But if he is, he did not keep the faithfulness of his ancestor. This man is rising up against the God of Abraham. But he's got a good name. Adonai Zedek, Lord of Righteousness. Adonai, again, that word sovereign one. I am sovereign, he says, of righteousness. That's, his, that's what his name means. And he is the king of Jerusalem, the king of Jeru Shalom, which will become the city of peace, the city of David. So here the Lord of Righteousness in name is the king of peace. And here even this wicked king, at least in name and in situation, anticipates the coming of the prince of peace who will reign over the eternal Jerusalem. But this guy's not a good guy, and he recognizes that Gibeon, from our text last week, Gibeon, who was a, it was a big city, a big strong city with a powerful army, they've made peace with Israel. Now, if you're the king of a little, little kingdom called Jerusalem, and you see that this mighty city makes peace, makes a, a peace treaty with this other nation, you might want to say, hmm, that sounds like a good idea. Let's see if we can have a covenant of peace with them as well so they won't destroy us. But that's not what this king does. He's angry at Gibeon for making peace. And he calls upon his fellow kings and says, look, let's rise up together and destroy Gibeon because they've turned on us. Gibeon at least had the fear of the Lord. They trusted that that God of Israel was a powerful God. These other kings say, no, we can take them. And so they mount up this opposition to the Israelites and to Joshua. It was a bad, bad move. Verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua, to the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Galgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them, and suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal, and the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by way of the ascent of Bethron, and struck them as far as Azekah and Mekeda, as they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. 
imagine that? One of the things I love about Joshua and all these Old Testament saints, they never use the sovereignty of God as justification for inaction. God said, I've got this. I'm going to destroy them on your behalf. Not a single one of them will stand against you. Joshua did not say, all right, let go and let God. Just going to sit back, surf the internet, watch reruns of past Super Bowls, watch the current Super Bowl, hang out. He didn't do any of that. No, he said, oh, God said we are going to win. Let's go. They marched through the entire midnight, all through dark hours, eager to do what God had promised them they would have success at. What are the promises of God that you cling to? What are the promises in the New Testament that you cling to and say, I know this is true. God has said he will do this. Don't ever let those promises Justify inaction. Yes, the Old Testament, Isaiah says, those who wait upon the Lord will have renewed strength. By waiting, he does not mean sitting and doing nothing. It means when we are weary from the battle, we wait for him to give us renewed strength to continue in the battle. But church, we got to fight. We are engaged in a battle with the kingdom of darkness. And they're fighting. Our enemy is fighting. He wants to take us out. He's not resting. He knows his days are numbered. He knows the end of the story. He knows he's going to be cast into a pit of hell. And he's just not sitting around wallowing in despair because of the doom that's coming upon him. He is angry knowing his time is short and he's doing everything he can to take us out. We must fight with equal passion and vigor knowing the victory has already been decided. We know how this turns out. We know we win in the end. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. But we've got to fight. We've got to fight hard. And sometimes we take some wounds. We take some hits, some shots. Sometimes we look out at what's going on in our nation and we think, looks like the kingdom of darkness is prevailing here. Well, I don't know what the next year, five years holds, but I do know that I'm called to stand firm. And you're called to stand firm and to bring the truth of Jesus Christ into this land, regardless of what's happening politically, regardless of what's happening culturally. Preach the gospel. Stand for truth. Stand for righteousness. And don't let God's sovereignty be an excuse to do nothing or to become distracted or lazy. Joshua brought his his army through, the, through the, the land at night and they show up at daybreak and they're ready for a fight and they take the fight to these kings 
And God says, great, I appreciate your eagerness. I love what you're doing. But like I said, Joshua, I got this. And he rains hail down from heaven and destroys these other armies. And Joshua's feeling it now. Imagine. Just just put yourself in Joshua's shoes for a minute. All your men have their swords. You're ready. You're, you're, You're waving those swords a little bit. And then suddenly hail just pummels the opposing army. And Joshua looks out and says, oh, this is so good, but we're, we're going to run out of daylight. So Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O son, stand still at Gibeon. And O moon in the valley of Ajalon. Do you see what Joshua just did? He commands the sun to stand still. Now we know Joshua obviously was not as sophisticated in his understanding of how things work what he really should have said is earth stops spinning, right? But, but you get the point. Do you realize how much faith it takes to command the sun to stop, stand still? Have you ever tried that? All right, another quiz for you. Joshua is the Hebrew word for the Greek word what? Jesus. Does this remind you of anything the New Testament Joshua ever did? Remember that story? He's asleep in a boat, and his disciples are scared out of their minds. These are professional fishermen. A storm comes up, and they are scared out of their minds. And they go and wake Jesus up. Jesus, big storm coming. And Jesus just very calmly and coolly walks over and says, hey, storm, stop. And it stopped. The scripture says they were very afraid when the storm came up. And then when Jesus commanded the winds to calm down, and they did, it says they were very much afraid. You think, well, wait a minute. The storm's gone. Why would they be even more afraid? Because they look at this man and say, what is this? People don't just command thunderstorms and windstorms and tornadoes, and the storm obeys. People don't do that. This man just did that. Whoa. What kind of person is this? Jesus had complete faith in his heavenly father. Storm, be still, be done. 
and it obeyed. That Jesus, on another occasion, was talking to those same disciples, and they were trying to do something that Jesus told them they could do, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus shows up, and you remember his rebuke? It's, it's the most common rebu rebuke from Jesus. Oh, ye of little faith. He says, don't you know, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, little bitty, if you had this much faith, you could tell the mountain over there to move, and it would move. tried that? I tried it once. But I, 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 it wasn't a mountain. You know, if I moved Pike's Peak, everybody would see it, and then, you know, I'd have to explain it, and who knows where that would lead. But one time, I was alone in my house. My family was all gone. I'm not sure why, but I was there all day by myself, and I was studying uh, this passage in, in Matthew, and I thought, I take Jesus at his word, there was a planter across the living room. What are you laughing at, Chris? You know where this is going, huh? There's a planter. I'm sitting on the, on the couch, and there's this planter. With, you know, it's, I don't know, weighs 10, 20 pounds, something like that. I said, okay, Lord, it's just me and you. I'm not putting on a show. I won't tell anybody, promise. I meant it. I'm not, I will never tell anybody. But you said if I have the faith of a mustard seed, I can tell Pike's Peak to move. Well, I think I have the faith of a mustard seed. This is not Pike's Peak. It's a little planter. So move, planter. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Guess what? It didn't move. Yes, I don't have the faith of a mustard seed. Oh, me of little faith. But in that moment, I mean, I looked at it, and I truly expected it to move an inch at least. I really did expect it to move. It didn't move. Now, my faith was not shattered. God didn't want it to move. That's not how we're supposed to play the game, right? It's... it's he always does these things to bring him glory. Actually, if he would have wanted me to do it in a situation where, he, where I could tell people, because it's not about my own personal journey, it's about bringing glory to the Lord Jesus. So if he ever wants me to have the faith to move a planter, he's going to do it in front of people so everybody can give him glory. I get that. But in that moment, I just thought, that's what Jesus said. I don't think we're supposed to go around commanding mountains to move or commanding storms to stop blowing or commanding planters to relocate. But do we have the faith that when obstacles come to the things that God has called us to do, we believe none of them are insurmountable? Do we believe that Jesus Christ is destroying his enemies and whoever comes against us cannot stand because Jesus is Lord of all. We sang that in several of the verses of the songs we've already sung today. 
Lord of all. Jesus, Messiah, Lord of all. He, is he the Lord of every enemy that rises up against you? The answer is yes. If he calls us to do something, there is nothing that can stand in our way. What does he call us to do? Believe him. Trust him. Go forward with the mission. Joshua had the faith of a mustard seed. Maybe bigger. And he sees God has called us to destroy these wicked Canaanites. And if we have a little more daylight, we can do it today. And so, with an impulsion of faith, he commands the sun to stand still. In front of the whole congregation of Israelites. See, yeah, I'm a chicken. I did it in the privacy of my living room. Where none of you know that I failed. Joshua says in front of the whole nation of Israel, Son, stand still. What happened? So, the sun stood still. And the moon stopped. Until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Now, I'm not recommending you go around and start telling natural courses what to do. But, oh, may we have the faith of Joshua in the midst of our enemies. This book of Jashar, I'm sure you're all wondering what it is. Me too. It's mentioned one other place in the Bible. Apparently, it was another book that contained poems and stories and accounts of God's work in Israel, and it's, it's lost to us today. But they would have known about it, and maybe there was more detail about this event there. So as the narrative goes on, Joshua has another day, and he chases after all these kings and their people, and one by one, the Jews destroy all of these wicked nations. The kings run and hide in a cave. So Joshua says, great, go put a big stone in front of the mouth of the cave and guard it. We're going to go clean house with the rest of the nations. They do that, and then they come back. This is what we read in verse 22. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. They did so and brought these five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. When they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the sons of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. 
Joshua then said to them, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. He said, men, come here. Compel these kings to be on their face. Put your boot on their necks. No enemy of Jesus Christ can stand against his people. Nowhere, no time. What are you afraid of, church? Who are you afraid of? Do not be afraid if you have the faith of a mustard seed. He must reign until all of his enemies are footstools for his feet. Jesus is not sitting back, letting go and letting God. He is actively destroying every ideology that raises itself up against him. Everything that puts itself against the name of God, Jesus says, I'm going to take you out. And he's put us as the army to take the battle with the preaching of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, and all of his commands. And knowing that if people refuse to bow the knee to Jesus as king, then they will be compelled on their face and he will put his boot on their necks. We win. It's been decided. It cannot be undone. The rest of human history has been written. Our job is to fight and to trust and believe. The end of the book of Romans, Paul's writing to a church in the midst of the capital city of the Roman Empire. And of course, Caesar doesn't like competition, so the heat is about to be turned up on the church. And Caesar is going to start destroying Christians. But Paul says, yeah, I'm worried about that in one sense, but I'm also worried about enemies rising up within. We see that throughout the New Testament. Paul is more concerned with enemies in the camp than he is outside the camp. And here's how he finishes Romans. Nope, that's Exodus. See, I didn't have the faith of a mustard seed this would work. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. There will be plants from the enemy's camp that rise up in our own midst. And Paul says, keep your eye on them. Don't follow them. Be careful. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. This is the primary task given to elders. 
Teach truth, refute those who teach error, because people who come in with false teaching or with a motive to cause dissension and strife through gossip and slander and raising up people to follow after this person or that person, they will destroy the church from within if we tolerate them. He says, don't tolerate them. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Be wise in the things that are right and pure and holy, and, and don't be engaged in this evil dissension and corruption. Notice what he says here. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So whether the enemy comes from outside or comes within the body of Christ, we stand firm, we preach truth, we hold to the truth, we act in faith with the truth of the gospel and God's word, and God promises you keep fighting and I will crush all of your enemies because I'm king over everything. So again, I ask, what are you afraid of? What are the obstacles? Who are the enemies that you shrink back from? You think, oh, I don't know, this could be, this could be too hard. This situation could be too hard. This political entity could be too strong. This cultural onslaught might be the thing that just wipes the church out. He will crush the enemy under our feet. Hold the line. Stand firm. Act like men, the scripture says. Be strong and courageous. And there will be times when the waters are pretty smooth. God gives us rest. He brings the hailstorms down and wipes it out, and we think, oh, we got this. Bring it on. No problem. Other times, it just seems like the waves might be overwhelming. What he says to us is, do you have the faith of a mustard seed? Just believe me. And I will give you rest for your soul. And you can say, Father, we thank you for this truth. Our Lord Jesus set the pattern for us. He stood against all the forces of evil mounted up against him. He stood alone as his friends rejected him and denied him and betrayed him. He stood alone as his own people rejected him. And he remained faithful and true even as you forsook him because he had our sins on him. And through it all, he persevered in faith. And before he gave up his last breath, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted you to the end.
you were faithful. Death was not the end for him. You raised him back to life. You seated him at your right hand where he sits today reigning over heaven and earth, destroying his enemies. And he has promised that every human being who puts our trust in him will be saved from your wrath and live eternally in paradise. Oh, Lord, in the meantime, may we at Front Range Alliance Church persevere in faith and fight and win for the glory of Jesus Christ.